This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You're listening to Porter State, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman. And coming up on the show, we talk over what happened with Emma Alberici's corporate tax piece last week. We take a look at how Twitter deals with doctored content and we'll look at the scandal at Vice Media. Joining me in the studio is SMH reporter Lisa Vicentin. Hello, Lisa. Hi, how are you? I am well, thank you. And the Saturday Papers morning editor, Alex McKinnon. Hi, Alex. Hiya. Thank you for joining us both. Now, before we dive into our topics for this week's show, I'd just like to briefly revisit a discussion we had last week about media revenue models. Our panel seemed largely to be in agreement that the best way to fund journalism is to get readers to pay. And if you missed that episode, it is still available on our podcast feed. But this week, BuzzFeed published a story about the potential for subscriber dollars to influence editorial independence just as corporate advertisers once did. The article suggested that the trend to subscriber-funded news will lead to an even more polarised news environment. The writer, an ex-journo-turned-academic called Andrew Potter, wrote, When a news organisation relies almost entirely on its readership for its revenue, it will inevitably start to cater to what the publisher perceives to be the political centre of gravity of that readership. And the readership will, in turn, make demands on the editors to shape that coverage in certain ways, which will tend gradually to shift that centre of gravity away from the middle and towards political extremes. The organisation will end up in an ideological box that the readership won't let it out of. What do you guys make of that argument? I mean, as someone who writes for uh, and works for a pretty lefty uh, media organisation, the Saturday Paper, shout out to my boss if you're listening, hello, um, <laughs> and which relies quite heavily relatively on um, subscribers, I don't think there's any particular pressure uh, from you know e- readers, either specific readers or readers in the aggregate, to doctor your content or um, you know address things they feel are being left out. Uh, you know we've always had things like letters pages where readers uh, write in usually to vent about something they feel that you know the newspaper isn't doing very well. 
Um, and in you know an age of Twitter and social media, obviously that can be amplified. But I think the the editorial prerogatives is still pretty strong, um, and a good editor or a good media organisation will recognise that um, whether or not kind of short term outrages fizzle out, um, having a, a longer term vision of what you want the newspaper or the outlet to be and what you want it to stand for is something that readers respect and will come back to even if they leave uh, for a short time over something. Hmm. Lisa? Yeah, look, I'm not sure how much I buy into uh, his thesis there, and it's a pretty damning one that um, companies, newspaper outlets, media outlets, um, whatever form the media takes, will be pulled so far um, apart by its readership that they'll only operate at the extremes it sort of treats readers, I guess, as some kind of like amorphous block that uh, as soon as something's published that they don't like, they all complain. Um, it's more the situation that you have a you've put forward a story and one person will accuse it of being you know too far to the left and the other will accuse it of being too far to the right and you can take some kind of comfort that it's probably somewhere in the middle where it needs to be. Um, there's wherever your money source is coming from that funds your journalism, there's always going to be questions that need to be asked about, you know, whether that compromises your editorial integrity. I think that's much more of a danger when you've got big uh, advertising campaigns by, say, the Commonwealth Bank running in your pages and you're trying to run a big exclusive on uh, corruption in the Commonwealth Bank, as an example. They're all really good points that you've both made. And these revenue questions, we will, of course, continue to be talking about on the show. Now, moving on. Last week, the ABC's chief economics correspondent, Emma Alberici, published two stories attacking the government's proposed changes to corporate tax rates. One story was a relatively straightforward news piece that reported ABC analysis claiming to have found that about one in five of the country's biggest companies have paid no tax for at least the past three years. The second was a longer analysis piece presenting a number of arguments in opposition to the government's claims that cutting corporate tax rates will raise average worker salaries. Some of the arguments in the analysis piece included the actual level of profits against wages growth in recent years, a look at what rates of tax some of the biggest companies are actually paying, and how the recent rate of investment has remained at historically high levels in the past decade despite the 30% rate. What the piece didn't include, however, was any argument for the government's tax proposals. After Bill Shorten retweeted the stories, Malcolm Turnbull attacked him and the ABC in question time. And then it was on for young and old. Several politicians and business leaders publicly condemned the piece, and the ABC then received formal complaints from both the Prime Minister and the Treasurer. And then, all of a sudden, the online news piece was changed to a rewritten version with a strongly moderated tone, and the analysis piece was simply gone. According to an ABC statement, it was removed because it did not accord with ABC editorial standards for analysis. Those standards insist that analysis should be impartial and that it should always stop short of prescriptive conclusions or overt advocacy of one position over another. But many were quick to cry foul that the ABC had censored itself and bowed to the government yet again. Alex, do you think the ABC's guidelines on analysis and opinion are in fact, too restrictive? I think they're too vague in that they can be interpreted to mean whatever the person reading them wants them to mean. Um, 
you know, Malcolm Turnbull and government critics can read them and say, you know, this is opinion masquerading as analysis. You know, the the definition or like the gap between those two terms is pretty fuzzy. Um, where does one end and the other begin? Um, you could have a long and very boring conversation about that uh, if you were inclined. But in regards to the specific article, um, it just seems as though uh, the government is, you know, jumping on a, a piece of criticism that it just didn't like. It, it, it seems like a bit of a storm in a teacup, really. What's interesting, though, is that that viewpoint, um, which obviously the government doesn't like, and it's a hot-button political issue because the opposition also doesn't like it. Um, so, but, but, the, but the thing is that that viewpoint is, is hardly a novel viewpoint, criticising the claims that reducing corporate tax will uh, increase investment and increase average worker wages. Um, and in fact, in the aftermath, many journalists shared links to similar articles they had written in the past, including Bernard Keane, Peter Martin, Greg Jericho, and the ABC's own Ian Verinder, Ver- um, which is interesting. And his piece even used one of the same sources in Alberici's piece, which was a US government's Congressional Budget Office comparative study of global tax rates. So do you think, right. is, is there something else going on here, Lisa? Well, I think I'm going to contradict myself on what we were just talking about before and about the role that um, readers can have in shaping um, I guess, news content and, and editorial lines. And particularly it's a problem with the ABC because uh, everyone is a, a subscriber in the sense we're all subscribers by being a taxpayer. And the ABC it, it kind of is a bit exposed in this way and always has been, particularly when it comes to uh, coalition governments who like to ho- um, hold out the kind of threat of funding um, over a perceived bias of the ABC. But the taxpayer is sort of this cudgel that the ABC just repeatedly gets beaten with um, because it has to it has to be seen as not having an, an opinion because it's funded by all of us. Um, so just to completely contradict myself from before, because ABC obviously doesn't accept um, funding from business, but it does accept government funding. And then you've seen here uh, a piece... That um, you know, perhaps the, minute, the prime minister did have um, a legitimate reason to complain, but uh, the ABC certainly has said that that's not the reason it took the piece down. It's that it didn't comply with its opinion and analysis guidelines, and it's made all the more difficult um, for Emma Alberici because uh, economics, uh, economic journalism, is a is a, um, a genre where is almost entirely analysis. It's about explaining things. Um, so it's an incredibly fine line for her to have to walk. Nevertheless, the piece was published on a Wednesday and apparently the ABC news director, Gavin Morris, did raise concerns sort of within a couple of hours after it was published. But it wasn't taken down until the Friday after the PM and the Treasurer had issued their formal complaints. So do you think we can read this sequence of events as cause and effect? Really difficult. I mean, who can know what happens behind closed doors? But we do know that a lot of pressure was put on the ABC by um, the PM's office. ABC's Media Watch covered this issue and said that, um, you know, they're the ones with the inside scoop to the ABC, said that the, the company was adamant that it hadn't bowed to any kind of political pressure, that it had just reviewed the articles and found them um, to be wanting in terms of its standards. So in response to the whole debacle, the Australian Financial Review published a piece. It headlined, Our ABC Perpetrates a Tax 
fraud. And it claimed it was debunking a lot of Alberici's story. They also wrote another piece titled ABC's Big Corporate Tax Reveal Exposes Its Innumeracy. And it should be said that while a lot of uh, people criticizing the piece criticized factual errors, there have been many people who have also said actually that it stands up and that that's not actually fair criticism. It's interesting, though, looking at the AFR response because, of course, Fairfax, and perhaps uh, I'll throw this to Alex, seeing as Fairfax is your employer, Lisa, but Fairfax potentially stands to benefit from the drop in corporate tax rate. Do you think that any for-profit big news corporation can be trusted to report on this issue then without bias? It's a difficult one. I mean, in an ideal world, you'd like to think that the journalists uh, aren't influenced at all by what the larger company uh, you know, is pursuing. Um, and you'd also like to think that the ABC, you know, is frank and fearless and doesn't um, take anything down for anybody except when it actually gets it wrong. Uh, but we don't live in an ideal world. Um, I, I am personally, like, very suspicious of the fact that, you know, the people who criticised Emma, Al- Emma Alberici's reporting the loudest, you know, government ministers and business leaders, both of whom have a lot to lose if the public turns on the corporate tax cut proposals. Um, Quentin Dempster, who used to host uh, Stateline um, and since has become a sort of uh, independent media sort of freelancer. And in fact was on the show last week. Ah. He wrote an article a couple of days ago um, and he claimed that he had spoken to people inside the ABC who said the decision was politicised. They spoke about the preemptive buckle. Um, of the ABC just caving to government demands to avoid, uh, you know, controversy or to avoid, you know, the the spectre of funding cuts. Um, so I would really like to believe that, you know, everything we read on the ABC is not affected by wider political considerations, but I don't know if that holds up. And Bernard Keane, writing in Cracky, who is not one to hold back his opinions, said that the ABC is looking increasingly like a state broadcaster not a national broadcaster. You're listening to Fourth Estate. Misinformation on social media has come to be a standard occurrence in the aftermath of tragic events, and the Florida high school shooting last week was no exception. But a new kind of misinformation was born in the aftermath of the shooting on Twitter. Twitter users began spreading screenshots that purported to show Miami Herald reporter Alex Harris tweeting at students from the school asking for pictures or video of dead bodies and a second doctored tweet in which she was asking whether the shooter was white. The tweets were doctored, they weren't real, that didn't stop them from going viral. And then, unsurprisingly, Alex received barrages of vitriolic abuse, including death threats. She reported the tweets to Twitter, but Twitter didn't take them down because Twitter's policies on impersonation are around fake accounts, not individual fake tweets or fake images. After BuzzFeed wrote a story on the situation and brought it to the attention of Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey on Twitter, he responded simply... We do need to revise this. He then added, We currently don't have a scalable policy or set of product features around the authenticity of content. Account-level policy against impersonation is clearer and more scalable. We need to figure out a scalable and objective way rooted in durable policy to do this long term. Lots of scalables there. And it's been almost a week and nothing since. I've got to admit, I was pretty shocked to learn that Twitter didn't actually have a policy that addressed individual pieces of fake content as opposed to 
fake accounts. I mean, yeah, how right. is that even right. possible? I mean, clearly Jack Dorsey was surprised by it as well. Um, <laughs> I don't think we've seen anything like this before, though. So maybe um, a lot of social media stuff adapts to uh, problems as they arise. I mean, I suppose it makes sense that they should have had some kind of foresight that this would happen, given that there is such a debate about fake news. Um, but this is really the first time we've ever seen something um, as weird and trolling as this. By, I assume by legitimate accounts with real humans and not bots attached to them. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right. So seeing as Jack Dorsey didn't have any immediate ideas how to solve the problem, Alex, you got any? Uh, hi, Jack, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> I'm not personally surprised that Twitter didn't handle it very well because Twitter hasn't handled anything very well in, I think, about five years. Um, <laughs> yep. You know, from uh, you know broadcasting alt-right accounts and not banning Nazis and not blocking people over rape threats and death threats. I have no idea what's going on at Twitter. In terms of this specific uh, controversy, um, it is so easy to make fake tweets. Um, there are websites you can go on. I've done it myself uh, among friends to, as just like a joke. Uh, and it is, especially with something like this, with a school shooting, it's very easy to make those sort of things go viral. Um, the sort of people who were behind, uh, who targeted this journalist were kind of alt-right, far-right figures who um, wanted to sort of discredit reporting around the school shooting more generally as a way of um, discrediting calls for gun control. What's really kind of scary about it is that it's just a taste of things like this which are to come. Um, fake tweets... You know, this is the first time we've seen this example of it. I, I imagine we're going to see it a lot more. Um, and what we're going to see as well in the next few years is fake video. Yeah. Um, I think that's some of the stuff that you can see already in that space is terrifying. Yep. It's being able to create uh, sort of re really realistic videos of Donald Trump or the one I saw was of Barack Obama kind of declaring war on countries and it being posted and uploaded online. Yeah, it's terrifying stuff. Yeah, it is terrifying and especially when when we come to realise through events like this that these platforms who spread these things around the world in a matter of seconds are scrambling to catch up after the fact. Another interesting thing about this was the willingness with which people were willing to jump on the bandwagon and condemn this journalist. Uh, it's quite typical for journalists actually to reach out to victims and witnesses in events like this for, for facts about Absolutely. what's actually going on, yep. Yep. Uh, images from the scene. And they also regularly, even when they are being tasteful, tactful, uh, sensitive about it, cop a lot of abuse. Why do you think people are so, like, look on that way of gathering information so badly? I guess because people never saw it in the past. Um, journalists would have to go to the scene or you would have to uh, get your various resources in your newsroom to pull out contact lists and landline numbers for houses around the, the area where something might be happening. Whereas now it's much easier to just sort of uh, approach people via Facebook or via um, Twitter. But people don't really expect or like to see you know, the sausage being made, I suppose, if yeah. they just want to read about it the next day. Or, you know, later that night. Yeah. I think there are older equivalents to it, though. Um, it, You know, growing up, uh, there would always be a controversy every six months or a year where the media would camp outside some, you know, bereaved person's house day and night and harass them when they opened their front door. Um, and those images, I think, have stuck in people's minds. I don't think journalists quite understand the extent to which they're despised as a collective group by most people. Um 
you know, with exceptions, people might make exceptions for their preferred media outlet. But as a cohort, journalists are dogs to most people. Um, there are also, you, you do think of real life egregious examples of media outlets crossing a line. Um, there was one a few years ago, I think, where Channel 7 uh, sent a helicopter um, with a video camera and they broadcast the backyard of someone's house where someone had died uh, and uh, the person's mother discovering them. Um, and they broadcast that live on TV and so quite a few of their family members found out that way. Mm. Um, so I think when people see a fake event like this, that looks like a journalist is, you know, trying to make a name for themselves by stepping over dead bodies. Um, the reason it rings true is because, like, like all good lies, there is an element of truth in there. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Alex McKinnon and Lisa Vicenton. Now, just as the internet arrived and started causing havoc in the homes of legacy media organisations, Vice Media was born. And in the subsequent years, when traditional media desperately grappled with how to serve and make money from news online, Vice Media grew into what is now a $7 billion global media company. In December last year, however, a New York Times expose revealed a workplace that was degrading and uncomfortable for women. They spoke to more than two dozen women who said they had experienced or witnessed sexual misconduct at the company and discovered at least four settlements involving allegations of sexual harassment or defamation against vice employees, including its current president. Now, in the aftermath of Harvey Weinstein and many other cases of sexual misconduct, including in other media organisations, what was remarkable about the vice revelations was that the harassment and abuse was being perpetrated by men in their 20s and 30s and 40s, not older men who lived and worked in a time when sexual harassment was was much much more regular uh-huh, and uh, and almost expected in the workplace. Adding to Vice's woes, last week, Vice was hit with a class action lawsuit in the US claiming systematic pay discrimination against female workers. Now, part of the reason Vice is seen as being so valuable, especially by rumoured potential buyers, Disney and Fox, is that they pitch squarely to and have great success with the millennial market. Now, of course, Vice Media made a distribution deal with SBS in mid-2016. SBS's second channel changed from being SBS to to SBS Viceland, and that channel broadcasts a lot of Vice content. Do you think that they're reconsidering that deal over at SBS HQ in Artarman right now? I would be. Um, I don't. I've watched SBS Viceland a total of uh, five times, and that was over the Christmas break when they um, broadcast Rockies one through five. Uh, five days in a row. That was great, and I would tune in every day if they did that. Um, but besides that, you know, personally, I don't really watch it. Um, in regards to the sponsorship deal between, you know, SBS and Vice, if you're talking about scandals at Vice, you kind of have to be way more specific because Vice has been one big rolling ball of scandal for a few years now. There were reports about... Uh, how they were exploiting their workers, vastly underpaying them back mm -hmm. in 2014. Apparently, in their New York offices, they were paying their staff and their journalists as little as 20,000 US dollars a year, which is, uh, to describe it as a pittance, is generous. Um, there have been endless sexual harassment allegations. Uh, last year, one of the editors of Broadly, their quote-unquote women's site, was fired because he colluded with 
Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, the alt-right poster boy, um, to publicly harass Lindy West, uh, a feminist author. Um, you know, leaked emails. The, the editor of Broadly, this so-called feminist site, was describing this woman as a fat pig. And just in general, the whole vice ethos is a very kind of aggressive, macho, bro-y uh, outlook and... Startup kind of, yeah, gamey culture, I suppose. Tech tech startup vibe about it. Yeah. It Boys reeks of Cheeto dust. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so John McDooling wrote in the SMH last week about the falling ratings of SBS Viceland and the cancellation of a similar agreement between Vice and Canadian broadcaster Rogers. Do you think that trying to get millennials to watch linear broadcast TV is just not possible, even for someone with apparent cachet in the millennials market like Vice? I just assumed people were streaming it from uh, their on-demand services. Mm. Uh, I do think it's odd, though, that as part of the deal, uh, SBS just changed the name of one of their channels and just rebranded it as Viceland. Uh, that was weird at the time. It's, it's, it seems kind of stupid now, given that you would you just automatically assume the branding of another company uh, given the woes that this company is currently facing, and that obviously rubs off on you if you're SBS. I, I have watched a little bit of SBS Viceland, and the whole strategy, I guess, is to, you know, broadcast shows that young people like and um, sort of loop them in that way. Um, but just from a, a business perspective, half the shows on Viceland you can watch on Netflix or Stan or a streaming service uh where you don't get ads and they don't do that weird thing where they where they speed up the program slightly so everyone kind of has a chipmunk voice, which is something that a lot of kind of network TV is doing now to cram in more airtime. Really? Uh, yeah. I didn't notice that. Maybe I'm just hypersensitive to this stuff. but <laughs> okay. That's it's amazing. A, maybe I'm just running like a one-guy conspiracy theory here, okay. but I'm determined to uncover it. <laughs> right. So as you mentioned, though, Alex, these recent scandals are not the first for Vice. Uh, Vice has been trying to clean up their act. They formed a diversity and inclusion advisory board, which includes the feminist icon Gloria Steinem. They hired a new head of HR. They fired three employees for behavior inconsistent with its values, all in the recent months. Obviously, there are many eyes watching it, but do you think that these measures will make a difference or are these sort of testosterone-y roots that we've mentioned of vice just too hard to overcome? I think it's a problem within the entire sort of new slash youth media industry. Um, just endless, endless stories have come out about all the different companies that project themselves as pro-young people, progressive um you know, BuzzFeed, Vox, uh, a few domestic players, um, all have just the, the same old skeletons in their closet where they underpay people, where they particularly underpay and discriminate against women and people of colour. The, the trick is always to look at the management structures of these places. Uh, inevitably, they are almost always run by white men, usually straight, usually from wealthy backgrounds, and the fact that they like wear shorts to work and do coke doesn't really make them progressive. Yep. Now, unfortunately, that is all we have time for on Fourth Estate. Thank you very much to my guests. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Alex, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast so that you will never miss an episode. And if you're already a subscriber, please leave us a review on your podcast app or on Facebook. It really helps us know what you like, and it also helps other people to find the show. You can stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. My name's Olivia Rosenman, and I'll catch you next week on Fourth Estate. <laughs>